We are continuing our four-week sermon series following in the steps of Paul on his second missionary journey. And I want to share with you this map that I shared with you last week. Uh, Once again, Paul begins the journey in Jerusalem and travels all the way up and ultimately to Corinth, where he spends a year and a half before traveling back to Jerusalem. And this next slide focuses in a little bit more on Greece. This is modern-day Greece. And last week, we talked about his time in Philippi. And this week, you're going to hear in the Scripture reading, we're going to refer to Amphipolis. We're going to refer to Apollonia. We're going to talk about his time in Thessalonica and Berea. That'll be their focus. Later on, you're going to hear me reference Macedonia and Achaia. And just a quick disclaimer. They don't pronounce Thessalonica the way we do. They call it Thessaloniki. And, you know, they're Greece, so they probably know what they're talking about. And uh, so I feel kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And all of us who went do, you know, if I say Thessalonica, I know they're going to be, our friends in Greece are going to be cringing. And if I say Thessaloniki, I know you're going to be cringing. And so just bear with me. I don't know what I'm going to say. And I'll, I'll probably be real self-conscious about it. Another, another point along those lines, they don't call it Berea. They call it Veria, V-E-R-I-A. And so you look up a Greek map, it says Veria. And so once again, be patient with me if I don't pronounce it the way you think it should be properly pronounced, all right? Um, I do have a couple of pictures to show you. This is a picture from Thessalonica. Uh, at the top of the hill, they have these city gate uh, wall that go all the way around the city for miles. And these walls, you know, date back to 400 B.C. I'm sure they've done a little restoration here on these. But uh, we were able to go into one of the towers. There are several towers along these city walls. We were able to go into this one, and we were able to go on the very top. And that's where, uh, here we are at the very top, and I'm reading the passage from Acts 17 that we're going to be looking at today. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 1 through 15, and this is the very inspired Word of God. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. 
But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned this last week. I want to mention it again. It's, I think it's good to think through the fact that many events happened, many conversations were had, much ministry happened in these cities and between these cities that were not recorded for us. And so Luke records for us what we need to hear, and we're grateful for that. And so we're going to focus on several lessons that we can learn from Paul's time in these two cities. And the first lesson is this. Christianity advances in the face of opposition. Now, Paul travels from Philippi to Thessalonica, would have taken, it's about 100 miles, right? It was 100 miles then, it's 100 miles today. The geography doesn't change. And uh, if, if you f- figure 25 miles a day, that's four days. So about a four-day journey, most likely, to, to arrive in Thessalonica. It would have been the second largest city in Greece in Paul's day with about 200,000 people. Today it's still the second largest city behind Athens with about a million people. And when Paul enters the city, he follows his normal pattern. Verse 2 says this was his custom. And so he goes to the Jewish people first. He goes to the synagogue first and preaches Christ there before going to the Gentiles. And we get a snapshot of what his preaching to the Jews sounded like. Look at verse 3 explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he's talking to Jewish people. They believe in one God. They're monotheistic. They believe in the creator God. Uh, They believe that, uh, that we are sinners and we've sinned against God. So Paul doesn't have to spend his time focusing on those themes. They, they, they're, they're with him on those themes. He has to focus his attention on those themes when he goes to Athens and preach to the Greeks, and we'll see that next week. But here, he knows they share common ground, of course. One God, creator God, we are sinners against him. So what is Paul's emphasis in his preaching? He starts preaching about Jesus and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament is pointing forward to a coming Christ who's going to deliver God's people. And Paul is saying, guys... I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the one that the scriptures were pointing forward to. And uh, it talks about how he, he talks with them about how he must suffer, the Christ must suffer. I'm sure referencing passages like Isaiah 53. Interestingly, this must have been sort of a, a point of contention because Jesus does the same thing on the road to Emmaus when he appears to the people. What does he do? He opens the scriptures and shows them how the Christ must suffer. So I'm sure in people's mind, in the Jewish mind, they're saying, if he's really God's son, Why is he being crucified on a cross and treated as a criminal? Surely God wouldn't allow his son to do that. So I'm sure this is kind of a hurdle that Jesus and Paul and the apostles, when they spoke to the Jews, they had to say, no, we want to show you from the scriptures how the scriptures reveal that it was necessary for him to suffer. He had to suffer and then rise again. By his wounds, we are healed. Notice the response of the people in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. So there's a large group of people who respond positively, but it says the Jews were jealous. Jealous of what? Probably jealous of this momentum. He's gaining a large following. 
uh, probably jealous of the fact that they are, you know, perhaps losing, they perceive like they're losing people and with people, money. And so they're, they're jealous. Verse 5, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. So they stir up the people of the city. They go around thinking, we got something going on here. You need to come and join us. we got trouble, troublemakers. And they go to Jason's house. Presumably Paul and Silas were staying at Jason's house. They know this. So they go to Jason's house. They say, bring out Paul and Silas. Apparently Paul and Silas got word that this was happening. So they escaped out the back door and pressed on to the next city. But notice that they bring Jason and some of the brothers out and they, they accuse them. They say, These guys are turning the world upside down. Verse 6. Here, Jason and them have enabled this. They're, ho- they're ho- housing them. Verse 7, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. So this is the accusation. And I want you to notice, very similar to the accusations that were brought against Jesus. Right? The, their real issue with Jesus and their real issue with Paul is the theological, and it's the following. But they know Rome doesn't care about that. Rome doesn't care about the theology. Rome doesn't care about the following, per se. Rome is interested in the political. Like, if you're a threat to Roman rule and Roman government, now we got an issue. So they appeal to this. They're saying, this guy's a threat to Roman rule, Roman government, claiming that Jesus, there's this other king. And by the way, I think this is one of the major emphases of Luke in Acts, is to, to, to demonstrate and to argue Christianity is not a threat to the government. Christianity is not a threat to Roman government. Christianity is, Christians are good citizens. And they follow Jesus as king, yes, but that is not a threat to Roman rule, Roman Caesar. And I think this is one of the reasons why uh, when Paul is, is released from prison, he says, I want the city magistrates to walk us out. I want to show the world we're, we are in, on good terms with the government. We are good citizens. We are salt and light here. Uh, we are not rebels, per se. Uh, notice how the opposition responds when Paul leaves. Paul and Silas leave town. You'd think the opposition would say, we got what we wanted. They're gone. Now let's press on and enjoy life. No, look at verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Berea is located 50 miles away from Thessalonica. 50 miles, that's like two days journey. They say, we're going to go to Berea. Why? Paul's gone. He's out. Just enjoy the peace, right? You got what you wanted. You ran him out. No, no. We're going to travel two days and go track this guy down and agitate the folks in Berea and stir things up there. Why? And the answer is one of our key principles here. When Christianity advances, when Christianity goes forth, you see opposition. There's opposition to the faith. And you always see it. We saw it with Jesus, didn't we? Jesus going around, large crowds, healing people, doing all kinds of good things. But there's always this crowd, this small group behind the scenes, stirring up, agitating, bringing false accusations, and ultimately will be responsible for his execution. And Jesus tells his followers, like he warns them, this is going to happen to you too. John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we see this with the apostles. They are strongly opposed. I want you to notice they don't water down the message. They don't compromise. They don't say, well, guys, maybe we ought to change things up a little bit. They don't back down in the face of opposition. 
I do want you to also notice they are wise. They are strategic. There's a time when they leave. They say, it's time for us to leave. Strategically, we need to move on. And they do. So they don't compromise. They don't water down the message. But they are wise and they are strategic. And I think there's some good lessons for us. In the face of opposition, we do not back down. We do not compromise. We do not change the gospel. We do not water it down. We do not accommodate for the gospel. But there is a lesson here. There is a time and a place to be strategic, to be wise, to perhaps change the strategy without changing the message and the values. I think we also learn here we should expect opposition. If we are involved in advancing the gospel, there ought to be some expectation that there's going to be some opposition to the gospel. And if there's no opposition to the gospel, if we are experiencing no opposition because of the gospel, it probably ought to give us a little bit of pause to say, are we really advancing it? Right? And I want to be really clear. The opposition I'm talking about is opposition to the gospel. Right? If we are not experiencing opposition because of the gospel in any form, I think it ought to give us pause to ask ourselves, are we really involved in any way of advancing the light in the darkness? Because when the light advances in the darkness, there's pushback. I couldn't help but think of the example of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot this past week as I was working on this, perhaps because my son is reading the autobiography by Elizabeth Elliot through Gates of Splendor, would strongly recommend it if you haven't read it. But it's a story uh, of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, missionaries to Indians in Ecuador in the 50s. And they, he particularly had a passion for the, this particular tribe of Indians who were very violent. They were violent with each other. They were for sure violent with outsiders. And Jim and his five, the five missionaries would go, and their strategy was to try to give gifts, and they were able to do that. Uh, but one day, the, the, the Indians turned on them and killed them. And then Elizabeth Elliot, his, his wife, and one of the guy's sisters and some of the other wives chose to stay there and chose to continue to minister to these same people who were responsible for the deaths of their husbands, brother, and they saw people come to Christ. They saw these, these, some of these folks come to Christ. And one of them, after coming to Christ, who was responsible for the murder of the missionaries, said this, quote, Maybe if we had known sooner that the Creator did not see it well that people should live angry, hating, and killing for no reason, we could have walked God's trail sooner. And Jim Elliot, of course, famously said, it's attributed to him, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain with that, what he, that which he cannot lose. And we learn, of course, a lot from Jim Elliot, but I also want to point out we learn a lot from his wife, Elizabeth, who could have easily said, you know, I think we're done here. Right? Put yourself in her shoes. Your husband goes in, missionary, trying to help people and is killed. I think the instinct might be, I think we're done here. I think we're out of here. And I don't think any of us would have blamed her. She said, I'm going home. She didn't do that. She stayed in the face of opposition and ministered to these people who were responsible for the death of her husband and saw many of them come to Christ. And so we learn that the gospel advances in the face of opposition. We see it with Elizabeth Elliot. We see it with Paul. And the question for you and me this morning is this. What opposition are you experiencing because of the gospel? Are you experiencing any pushback any opposition because of the clarity of the gospel that you are speaking to others. We're reminded here that the gospel advances, the Christian faith advances, even in the face of opposition. 
Second, Christianity advances through actual people and places. I think this is probably the main lesson that I've taken away when I've gone to Israel, when I've gone to Greece. In your mind, you don't even realize it, but you just start to think of these stories as being myths. And, and you have a lot of people who, who, who today claim that the Bible is just full of myths with a few truths. And, uh, you know, anytime I hear somebody making that claim, the Bible is just a bunch of myths uh, with, some, with some truths. And some of, them, some of them, of course, are true. Anytime I hear someone claiming that, I realize, A, they don't really know much about myths. And B, they don't really know much about the Bible. Because myths, ancient myths, are kind of fantastical in nature. They don't deal with specifics. The Bible is history. And it deals with, with a lot of specifics. It's a historical book. And I just want to point out several examples. First of all, we have specific locations in the Bible. Very specific locations. I'm going to go back to the map. We talked about Paul, of course, being in Philippi. And then we talked about this path that he took. Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica. Why these cities? Are these just random cities that Luke just sort of said, I'm just going to look at a map and mention these? No, there's an order, there's a rhyme, there's a reason. They follow this particular road, the Via Ignatia Road, which is a Roman road that eventually, follow it far enough and go across the water, will literally lead to Rome. And so it's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that Paul goes to these cities. They are the cities along the Roman road. And uh, here's a picture in Thessalonica of the, the Via Ignatia. It runs right here, right along here. Now, the arch would not have been there in Paul's day. That, that arch is about 300 A.D., so it came about 300 years after Paul. Still very old, obviously, to us. But, so Paul didn't walk under the arch, but he walked right along here. You know, it's an actual place on an actual map, and the Christian faith happened in actual places that you can go and visit today. And uh, I'm going to share more of these pictures and these stories of our trip this coming Wednesday night at my Bible study. So if you'd like to see more, hear more, uh, we will meet at 6.30 this Wednesday evening in the Fellowship Hall, and I'll share more about the the trip. Secondly, I want you to notice that we have specific references to time, time references, not just specific references to places, but specific references to time. Verse 2 it says he, he was there for three Sabbath days. That's specific. Not two Sabbath days, not four Sabbath days, three Sabbath days. In other words, three weeks, three Saturdays. Right? Uh, look at Acts 18, verse 11. It says he was in Corinth for one year and six months. Like th- these are actual days, actual time, actual days on a calendar. You could, a person could hypothetically write down, he was here this day, he was not here that day. We have specific references to time. We have specific references to people. Last week it was Lydia. This week it's Jason and the brothers. And presumably Jason and the brothers are the ones who are the foundation who start the church in Thessalonica. There's a church formed with actual people, with actual names. One of their names is Jason. And this is one of the churches that Paul's going to write specific letters to. And he's going to write them while he's in Corinth. So he leaves Thessalonica, makes his way down to Corinth. While he's in Corinth for a year and a half, at least two letters he writes back to the Thessalonians. Of course, we refer to them as what? First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. And it's just good to remember. It's an actual person, an author, writing an actual letter to an actual church filled with actual people who have names. 
And let me just read to you a couple of excerpts from, from Thessalonians just to kind of let you feel the personal nature of the letter. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. Paul says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul says, Church, your faith is, is known. It's spreading. People know about it. They're talking about it. It's encouraging people. So way to go. The way you received us, the way you heard our message, and you turned from idols to worship the one true and living God. See, it was mostly Greeks who came to Christ in Thessalonica. So they turned from idols, and they turned to worship the one true and living God. And Paul is saying, way to go. I'm just writing to encourage you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. It's almost like Paul is saying, I'm sorry, church, that I was so quickly ripped away from you and we didn't get to have a chance to hug and say goodbye. And I have tried to come back and visit you, but Satan has hindered it. What exactly does that mean? Maybe it's a reference to this opposition, this group that opposed him that ran him out in the first place. But I just want you to notice, actual people, actual church. We also have reference specifically to the women. Women play an important role of the Christian story, in particular in this second missionary journey of Paul's. Uh, last week we saw the reference to Lydia and the women by the river. Verse 4 here says, Not a few of the leading women were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And then look at verse 12. Not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men believe in Berea. So he's, he's very specific. It's not just a few people, a handful over here, a handful over there. It's specific. He's telling us specifics. Why? It's history. Right? It happened in history. We have the example of Berea. Verse 11, Paul says, now Berea was more noble. Luke lets us know that. They were more noble in Berea. That's a good reminder to us. Different, not only do different people have different personalities, not only do different churches have different personalities, but different cities have different personalities. I've been reminded of that this past football season, traveling around the state of Colorado for high school football, and I'm reminded of how different every town is. There's a big difference between Rye, Colorado, and Rocky Ford, Colorado, and Aspen, Colorado. Right? Very different. Almost like two different worlds. Right? A big difference between going and watching a football game out in Peyton, Colorado, and watching one in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And a big difference in going to Boulder, Colorado, right? Very different people, very different cities, uh, very different churches. What difference does all of this make for us? Uh, first of all, I, I think it should give us great confidence in the Bible. Reminding us of the truthfulness of the Bible. The Bible is true. Many of you believe that, affirm that. And for those of you who do, just be encouraged this morning as you're reminded... The Bible is historically verifiable. The Bible is historically true. And that gives us even greater confidence in the message of the Bible, what God has said he will do. And for those of you who may kind of be on the fence, you say, I'm not sure. The jury's still out with me. To me, I just think these are a bunch of myths telling a bunch of truths, and maybe some of them are true. Here's my encouragement to you. The Bible can take your scrutiny. So scrutinize it. Place it under historical uh, scrutiny. Ask the question, roll your sleeves up and spend the time and investigate it and test it. 
and do the research and then study ancient myths and study ancient history and see if the Bible seems more like a myth or more like history. And if it seems more like history, ask yourself, why? Why? How do I explain all of these specifics and references to people and places and letters? How do you explain this incredible message that starts in Jerusalem and spreads like wildfire across the world? How, How do you explain that? Lives changed. We're here today. How do you explain that? So, so, If you're going to be on the fence, okay, but don't stay there. Investigate it. Do some work. Do some research. Explore it. And then form an actual educated conviction about it. Be like the Bereans. Be open-minded. Just don't be closed-minded. That's all we're asking. Be open-minded and be willing to ask the question, is this true? Does it stand up to historical scrutiny? And I think we also learn here we should look around at the people and the places where God has us. God has specific people in your life right now. God has you in specific places right now. Those are not just happen to be here. You don't just happen to be at that place with those particular people. God has you there for a reason. So don't waste it. Don't waste. God works through actual people and actual places and actual circumstances, often ones we wouldn't expect. Often it's the least likely, as we talked about last week. So don't waste the place where God has you right now. Don't waste the opportunity with the people that God has placed you with right now. And this brings us to the third lesson I think we learned from Paul's time in these two cities, and that is Christianity advances by the Word of God. Paul leaves Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. We've already mentioned it's 50 miles away. It's kind of off the beaten path. In other words, you kind of have to be wanting to go to Berea to go to Berea. And I kind of wonder if in Paul's mind he's thinking this is you know, maybe going to be a little downtime. You know, I've got some pretty tough treatment in Philippi. <laughs> got some pretty tough treatment in Thessalonica. Maybe we go to Berea, a little bit more of a sleepy town maybe, and get a little rest. But of course, that's not what he does when he gets there. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived... They went into the Jewish synagogue. They go right back to their pattern. They go right back to preaching. Verse 11, it's a great verse. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Notice it says they were more noble in Berea. Literally in the Greek, it's eugenis, which means literally good genes. These Bereans had good genes, right? In other words, they were more noble than the Thessalonians, right? They they weren't closed-minded. They were open. They were open to hearing a word. So Paul comes into town with the word, and they say, we're willing to listen. We're willing to have open minds. We're willing to admit we may not know everything there is to know. We may need to to change our thinking. So tell us. We're open to receiving. But they're also not naive. They don't just say, well, you seem like you know what you're talking about. We'll accept what you say because you seem really passionate about it. No. Notice what it says. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So notice they're open-minded enough to listen, but they're also not naive and just will accept anything you say. They scrutinize what Paul says and they place it under investigation. Under the investigation of what? The Scriptures. They go to the Scriptures, the Old Testament. They say, is what he's saying consistent? Now, what was Paul saying? Most likely he was saying the same thing he said at Thessalonica, that the Christ must suffer, that the Son of God must suffer in order to 
save sinners. And so Paul preaches the gospel and how Jesus Christ must suffer and how he's the fulfillment of the scriptures. And notice what happened, verse 12. Many of them therefore believed. And they give us a great model for us to follow. I had someone just this past week tell me that when he was younger, growing up in the church, he had a preacher one time say from the pulpit, the preacher said, don't, don't take what I say and believe it just because I say it. The preacher said, take what I say and then examine the scriptures and only receive what I say if it's consistent with the Bible. And he said that really was powerful to him. And from, he pinpoints that moment as being the moment when he decided to actually start exploring the scriptures and studying the Bible on his own. And today, he's one of our Sunday school teachers and actually teaches a class called the Berean class. Right? Every good church has a Berean class. right? And uh, he teaches the Berean class. And uh, it, I will say the same thing. Just in case this spurs someone out there to go study the Bible, I'll say the exact same thing. Don't, don't take what I say to be true just because I say it. Only take what I say to be true insofar as what I'm saying is consistent with the Word. And so by all means, go take it daily and examine it and see if what I'm saying is consistent with it. And if what I'm saying is not consistent with it, by all means, don't accept what I say. Right? I'm only speaking on the authority of God's Word. I'm not here speaking on the authority of Chris or the church or anything else. I stand only on the authority of God's Word. That's my goal. We were able to go visit Berea, and there is a monument there uh, in the very place where they think that the synagogue was, where Paul would have visited. And so I don't know if you can see it, but these stairs right here, they claim, are the stairs of the original synagogue. And so just one more kind of focus. And so, so they believe these would have been the stairs that Paul would have walked up in order to access the synagogue where he preached in Berea. One of the main lessons that we learn from Paul's ministry at Berea is the importance of this book. The importance of this book. When Christianity has advanced throughout church history, God's people have recognized the importance of this book. Yes, there have been a few examples of revivals here and there that weren't overly connected to the Bible, but even those revivals didn't last any time at all. They didn't have a lasting impact. It was sort of a flare here or there. Uh, so we want to continue to come back to the Scriptures. We want to continue to be about this book. And Whitney reminded me this past week that someone several years ago visited our church and came away and said, man, they sure do take the Bible seriously. And uh, to which I say, amen. That's exactly what we want to do. We want to take the Bible seriously. We hope when you visit, you leave saying, they sure do take the Bible seriously. We say, amen, we want to take it even more seriously. We want to lean into it even more. We want to come back and stand on the Word even more. Uh, I truly believe with all my heart that if we as a church are going to go wider in terms of having a greater impact for Christ in Colorado Springs, the only healthy, faithful way that happens is if we also go deeper in God's Word. You can hypothetically go a mile long, but if you're an inch deep, it's going to fill in really quickly, right? So, What's our vision? What's our mission? We want, to, we want to be as wide as we can be in terms of reaching as many people for Christ as we can. But we also want that impact to be lasting. Like next decade, the next decade, the next decade. So in order for it to be lasting, it has to, we have to also go deep in God's Word and remain rooted in God's Word and keep dogmatically coming back to the book. 
Right? We can't get away from the book. Uh, there's, there's a natural tendency to drift. I would argue a lot of churches are drifting. We can't drift. We are capable of drifting. We are capable as a church of drifting. Getting into the motions, this is what we do because this is what we do, and getting away from this is God's Word, this is the book, this is what we're about. Right? Why? Why, why? Why this book? What is it about this book? Because this is God's Word. It is this book that, that by God's Spirit changes our lives. We come to Christ by the Spirit of God working in cooperation with the Word of God to change us. It is by this book that we grow in Christ that we become sanctified. You can't become sanctified, become more like Christ, become more holy apart from the book. It is by this book that we have an impact. It is this book by God's Spirit that will change others. It's by this book that we will have an impact in the lives of others in Colorado Springs. Uh, what is it that is the message of this book that's so important? If, if the book's so important, what is the central message of the book? The central message of the book is the fact that there is a creator God who created you and you owe your entire existence to him. And because of your sin, you are separated from him and under his judgment and wrath. And if you remain there, you will die under his wrath for an eternity. But God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son and he was committed to it from day one. From the beginning of the fall, he committed himself in the Old Testament to, to send a Christ who would redeem the situation. But the Christ would suffer. The Christ must suffer. And Jesus came and suffered. In my place condemned he stood. He went to the cross for me. He went to the cross for you. He died for sins. For our sins. And God accepted his sacrifice and God raised him up. And today he is alive and well at God's right hand. And one day soon he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. He's going to return to establish his kingdom. And he's going to reign forever as the king. And there's only one way you can stand up under that judgment, and that is if you turn from your idols, turn from whatever it is you're worshiping. You're worshiping something. We're all worshipers. We're created to worship. You're worshiping something. Identify it. Turn from it. Turn from your sin. And turn to the one true and living God and worship Him and come to trust in Him and believe on Him. Make sure today you hear this message of this book. The book is so important. Why? One reason is because of the message of the book. What is the message of the book? You can be saved. If you'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So make sure you're trusting in Christ and make sure you're a part of a local New Testament church that is advancing this incredible good news. Let's pray.